Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. The Contrarian Investor Podcast wants to find the best and give them a voice. To help in our search, we use Covey to find and track the best contrarians. Our guest stock picks are available in real time on the website covey.io slash contrarian. Now these portfolios are available for anyone to view, track, and share. And on top of that, we encourage our listeners to join our community by building virtual portfolios of stocks and ETFs to compete and rise to the top. At the end of the year, we'll interview the top performing analyst on Covey, right here on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. That means you or any great contrarians you know can rise to the top based on merit and get a voice. Again, the website, covey.io slash contrarian. Todd Sullivan of valueplace.com. Thank you for rejoining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Great to have Thanks you. Thanks for having me. It's been a year just about, I think 11 months or so. Has it really? I believe wow. so, October of 21. When wow. you came on the show and told us at the time the very unpopular pick to invest in oil and you provided the, at the time, outlandish prediction that oil would go to $100 a barrel. Well, you did not predict, could nor could you have uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but no. we could certainly say that oil was headed there anyway. Now, the question here is, because oil has had a great first half of the year and more recently has kind of sold off a bit. And so the question is for you, if we go back to the highs in oil or if we continue to tread water or maybe head lower, yeah. and that's the first thing. And then second of all, we have some stocks in there. And then also for the second part of the show, we want to talk about cannabis, but that's a whole bunch of stuff. 
but let's start with with oil first your views there whenever i look at oil or natural gas or those stocks uh, i always start my my premise with what's what's where's the where's the biggest risk so in this situation is there a larger risk that oil goes higher or is there an, a larger risk that oil goes lower right and that's kind of kind of how i i look at things and when i looked at it october of last year i didn't see any way how oil could go down from where it was right there excluding the russian invasion that you know was not even part of the thesis at that time it just the fundamentals of the industry especially here in the us I just did not see a scenario how oil was going to go lower. So I thought higher prices. Uh, and that was really based on the rhetoric of the administration, early actions they had taken, and stuff like that. So I still do think right now that the, the risk of oil prices is much higher prices than there are right now. Production is not coming back. People seem to think that oil production is flip a switch and we can just add 100 rigs in the Permian and start pumping out another two or three million barrels a day. That's just not how it works. <laughs> this is like an ocean liner. It's not a speedboat. It takes a long time for the industry to restart uh, when it's been shut down to levels like it was during the pandemic. Well, basically, a lot of the workers left, left the country. I mean, <laughs> we're not talking, you know, we're not talking when you got a job at CVS around the corner. They don't exist in this country anymore. They left. And then you added the invasion. And now, you know, people argue now that we are uh, due for a recession and that's going to kill demand. And that I think that's what's driven prices from where they were to where they are right now is this expectation of demand destruction uh, from a recession. I think that is a much less risk than the risk of something, another shock that drives prices significantly higher hmm. or continued irresponsible fiscal policies out of Washington that flood the markets, right? They flood the markets with dollars and that drives the price higher also. So I think there's a, you know, and we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine, right? I mean, experts will disagree on what's going to happen, but we all know Putin's a wild card. So we cannot definitively say he would never do A, B, C, or D, right? He, he may decide, hey, it's not going good in Ukraine, Yugoslavia, here I come, right? Or he may, you know, he may decide to open this thing up, in which case we get another uh, shock to the oil markets as there be additional sanctions and things like that. Uh, Europe is already suffering uh, with their gas prices. I mean, I've seen gas prices up 1,600% in some areas. In the summer, that's uncomfortable because you sweat a lot. In the winter, people die, right? People freeze to death in the winter. And I, I think we have a very bad... Again, it depends on the weather this winter, right? But if we have a cold winter, both the U.S. and in Europe, there's going to be a lot of human suffering. That's going to cause some additional actions on the on the, the by governments around the world. And typically, those actions aren't good for prices, right? They're going to do some sort of moratorium, price caps, blah blah blah. Price caps just destroy production, right? So um, we'll see what happens. But I think the definite risk is for higher prices and the real risk is for substantially higher prices. I don't see any risk at all of us being back around $30, $40 a barrel anytime soon, anytime do, soon. Do you have a target for the upside? I think we can go as high as 150, 175. Really? Yeah, and it won't take much, you yeah. know, uh, any kind of skirmish in the Middle East, right? Uh, Iran decides to act up in the Strait of Hormuz for a couple of weeks. Uh, you're going to see oil, so you're going to see oil. We are already, we've drained 30% of the SPR in the U.S., right? That, we've never done that before. The SPR has never been 
drained as fast as it's being right, right now in, in our history. So that's a scary thing. At the current pace, by this time next year, almost 70% of the SPR will be gone. Wow. And that's been the emotional sort of bumper for oil prices when they jump. Right? Oh, we're going to release a million barrels from the SPR, which is a drop in the bucket, but it has an emotional calming effect on the market. Hmm. The ability to do that is running out, number one. And number two, people are going to start to panic when you see the SPR being drained like that. You're going to see panic, Brian. What you're going to see is oil traders say, hey, you know what? In a year or two, the government's got to refill this sucker. So I'm going to start buying my oil futures out into the future Right. So then the government starts buying this stuff back to refill the SPR at higher prices, which is what they always do. They're going to capitalize on it. So that, that's the risk that not many people are talking about for higher prices. Mm. So we have a, a crazy pertinent in, person in Putin who could do whatever. We have, you know, I think this is probably one of the longest stretches we've gone with as far as what you say, peace in the Middle East, mm. right? Or calmness in the Middle East. And then you have government's reactions to various things that could happen. So I don't. I would not be at all surprised to see prices that high. And 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 the industry, you know, the you know the industry almost went bust uh, a few years ago when prices collapsed. Mm-hmm. And they learned their lesson. And investors and debt providers learned their lesson. The industry, the industry is not allowed to leverage up like it used to. And when the industry can't leverage up like it used to, its spending is really constrained. And when you have times where you need rapid expansion of drilling, of shipping, of, of uh, you know, uh, oil services company, they can't expand as fast as they have in the past. They can't meet that demand as fast as they have in the past because they don't have the access to capital like they had in the past to do that expansion. And that's something that, that's not their fault. That's just the market dictating that. And honestly, it's, it is the government's reaction, right? So when the banks got in trouble, they got bailed out, right? When other industries get in trouble, they get bailed out. Nobody cares if XYZ oil company goes under. They don't get bailed out. So they have the, you know, they are the ultimate market, right? When you think about it. Uh, so they've, they've self-policed themselves. Out of, out of, if we don't do it, we're going to go under. We have to. There's no bailout for an oil company coming from the U.S. government, right? We all know that's never going to happen. So they have to be responsible and prudent, which means when desperate times hit, like it is right now, they can't get over their skis financially to meet that demand because if that demand doesn't materialize or drops they're screwed hmm. and that's just policy right that's policy we said to oil companies you're on your own we actually actually said to them we want to destroy the oil and gas companies right that's what our incoming administration said we will destroy oil and gas we want to destroy these jobs we want to destroy coal well if you're told by the administration for the next four years their guns are out for you you are going to do what you're going to turtle you're going to hoard every penny you got because you know there's nothing coming if shit hits the, shit hits the fan. So that's what's happening. And it's, it's, it's a combination of all these effects that have, when I looked at it, you know, take Putin out of it. But when I looked at October, I said, there's absolutely no way oil can go any lower. It has mm-hmm. to go higher with any type of economic recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, to me, it was an obvious straight. Yeah, let's talk about the demand picture, though. Um, specifically, you know, the biggest consumer of oil is China, I believe. And they have these, you know, COVID shutdowns and, and which is which is part of what's hurt the prices here, too, I believe. Mm-hmm. And what what is the risk that the they have all kinds of problems in their real estate market and potentially a lot of other stuff under the surface? How much of a concern is that? How much are you factoring that in? Because that would be some pretty big demand destruction right there, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like we kind of hear about a mini China implosion every three to five years, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I 
I've been really on Twitter and in the public games since 2007 talking about stocks. And I think Chinese real estate has been collapsing since 2007. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the longest, slowest, unrecognized collapse in the history of man. And, and when they got bored in China, they just started buying U.S. real estate left and right, right? And now we're hearing Chinese buyers are selling U.S. real estate at a pretty rapid clip to make up for what's going on at home, right? China is so big and they require so much for energy. I think the demand destruction for oil play for China is really overblown. At the end of the day, China is an emerging manufacturing company that has to consume oil for anything that they do. I know they burn a boatload of coal for electricity and things like that, but they really can't function without oil. I don't see a scenario. And I think we both know they're buying Russian oil. You can say what you want to say about, you know, Russia's bringing it through Ukraine. They're bringing it through, I'm sorry, not Ukraine, other countries. They're, they're routing their oil through. Russia isn't stockpiling 10 million barrels a day of oil. You know, it's going someplace. China's getting their oil. So I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about the China problem. I would be more concerned about a severe drop in the U.S. economy mm. than I would be in China as far as oil demand goes. I mean, we are the per capita largest user of stuff in the world. So okay. I mean, it's, that, that, that's a far bigger concern for me than something going on in China. Because, really? you know, despite, yeah, despite China shut down stuff like that, China's still growing. We're not growing in the U.S. right now. We're, we're going to go on our third quarter of negative or flat growth, right? Depending what you believe for the outlooks for Q for this current quarter, you know it was 2.4 GDP a month ago. I think yesterday I saw 0.2. They revised it down to. Yeah. It's only a matter of time before they revised that below, uh, and we have three quarters of, of negative growth. And maybe at that time uh, the government will admit it's a recession. I, I don't know they're going to change the defini definition of a recession again. I don't know, but but you do see the risk in the U.S. So walk me through that. How would that play out? So basically, it's just like you have. A slowing economy, which leads to less demand. and, and, and Yeah, so I mean, typically the playbook is, you know, uh, recession hits, people lose jobs, people stop driving, oil demand falls, right? That's typically the scenario that happens. The difference now is that we're not, we're not coming off such high levels. And we've seen a fundamental shift in the economy as far as people being employed, right? People are working from home more now than they were a year ago, two years ago, dramatically so, mm -hmm. right? Uh, more people are self-employed. They have multiple jobs right now, and a lot of those jobs are remote. They don't require you to be in a car every day. So while the old playbook was if we drop you know, X percent in GDP, we can expect X percent drop in oil demand, I don't think that ratio holds so much anymore. So I think we'd have to see a substantial recession in the U.S., not one of these one or two percent negative growth for a couple of quarters, which is technically a recession, but it's, you know, most people don't feel that. Most people are feeling inflation rather than losing their yeah. job from a recession. Mm -hmm. I think it would require six, seven percent negative growth for a couple of quarters before you really start seeing something like that. Because then then you're talking about, you know, you're not going to see the same correlation with consumer demand, but you would see a correlation at those levels with trucking demand, train, things like that, jet fuel would start to fall because travel would start to fall. You know, despite the fact that we've had two quarters negative growth, air travel isn't slowing down, yeah. right? And, and that's a pretty big use of oil, right, for jet fuel and stuff like that. So, uh, again, I, you know, I, I do think we're in a recession. I do think it's mild. I think the odds to that are it gets worse, not better. But I don't think, you know, I don't, you know, people want to go to 08, 09. You know, people love to, everyone wants to be the, uh, make the dramatic call, right? So they could do a victory lap if they're right. But I don't, 
with you know homeowner equity is too high, home prices have increased too much, and 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 bank lending the last 10 years or the last 12 years since 08. 14, yeah, man. Just 14 <laughs> years. Yeah. So Jesus, that long ago. Um, you know, bank lending now compared to then is is light and day. I mean, you can't even compare the type of loans that are out there now versus then. You know, the liar loans, they don't exist and stuff like that anymore. So, you know, I, you may see something, but it's not going to be a sir. And we both know that the government is going to pump more money out there if that does happen, because, you know, we have elections coming up yeah. and they're not going to they do everything humanly possible to stop an official recession call before midterm election. So they're going to pump more money in the economy. So I think actually the risk is higher inflation, the higher places, because the government policy than lower inflation and lower prices. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian supercast.tech for more information all right what about stocks here what kind of what, what, what do you like so i i have loved the pipeline stocks especially okay. kinder morgan and williams for a long time now right. i like occidental on the on the refinery stage i mean you know buffett seems to wake up and have his egg mcmuffin for breakfast and 10 million shares of occidental petroleum yeah, <laughs> i mean it's just and he's been doing it for years and you know i you know it I think he was ahead of this oil play even before I was in October. I mean, he's been buying Occidental for quite some time and uh, the refinery space. I mean, you know, it's funny. Whenever you see oil prices, the, the administration comes out and says, drill more, drill more, produce more, produce more. And our refineries are running 95% capacity. Mm. It's not like we have refineries sitting idle, not producing oil, not processing oil into gasoline or other, or other, um, other products, right? They're running flat out. We can't build more refineries. That's the problem. Uh, pipelines, you know, other than the state of Texas, you really can't build a pipeline of any substantial size in the U.S. right now. Look at, if you look at the Northeast United States, okay, I live in Massachusetts. We pay three to five times what Chicago pays for natural gas, the last I looked. And that fluctuates wildly. I've seen 10 times what we pay in the Northeast. We sit 200 miles from the Marcellus share, which is the largest natural gas formation on the face of the earth, right? And we pay higher, higher gas prices. Why? We can't build pipelines to get here. Hmm. Every major pipeline project on the East Coast has been killed by democratic governments or environmentalists or these regulations about a frog that might be displaced. Um, so people are paying. And, and, and you know, it's funny. Energy policy that is not based on lowering the price of energy, increasing access to energy hurts the poor because all it does is increase prices. It is a tax on poor people. There's no rich person sitting home stressed out because their electric bill went up 300 bucks a month, right? Or doubled, right? In the last month, which I know, I know about you, but my electric bill doubled over last summer this year. You know, millionaires aren't worried about that, right? It's yeah. the it's, it's everyone who's going out there making 19, 20 bucks an hour or less who's giving up things now to heat, to cool their home in the winter. And that's going to be a real problem come this winter. And we're going to mm -hmm. see stories of winter of people. It's not going to be pretty because they're not going to be able to afford to heat their homes mm -hmm. um, or, or buy food or do other things. So mm -hmm. uh, it's going to get ugly. Um, so I, I love, but those stocks, but we're not building any more of those things. So you have a, you have a, a resource in oil that more is pumped every year, more needs to be processed every year, 
but we have a finite transportation network right now. And we have a finite um, processing network right now. So to me, if you're going to sit someplace long-term, 70% of the U.S. natural gas is touched by two companies, Tinder Morgan and Williams. Yeah. Buying those two stocks, you basically have a monopoly in natural gas transport in the U.S. right now. And oh, by the way, last time I checked, they were paying 68% dividends. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, to yeah. me, yeah, to me, and you know, I know the, you know, the, the MPL and the, the pipeline industry got themselves in a lot of trouble again, 14 years ago before, you know, religion was impressed on the industry about spending and debt, things like that. But both Williams and Kinder Morgan, they converted to C Corps. So you're not dealing with that K1 crap on your taxes anymore. They're both solidly have fixed their debt issues. They have four and a half times coverage. They have two to three times dividend coverage. These are rock solid financial companies that are operating in an industry where there's no more competition coming. The only way you can compete with those right now is through acquisition. You can't build a company in the US right now to even remotely come close to competing with those two companies right now without purchasing your way there, which would cost hundreds of billions of dollars in acquisitions. Yeah. So I mean, for the next five years, I mean, to me, it's, 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 I think I said this on the last show, it's like the mass turnpike is the only pay highway in Massachusetts. You want to get from Boston to Albany, New York quickly, you got to take the mass bike. Every day, more and more and more and more cars travel on that through on that throughway. Every year they raise the tolls. That's what a pipeline company is. Every year, more and more gas goes through Kinder Morgan and, and Williams pipelines. And every year rates go up a little bit more. And they just sit there and they collect that toll. They do the little uh their little expansions off those main lines that they have. Kinder Morgan is massive in the Permian. They're the, the monster of the Permian Basin. And then Williams owns the Southeast and Northeast United States. So you got two thirds of the US covered by those two companies, massive natural gas and oil shippers. So I mean, for me, that's a, a nice, safe, high yielding place to go. Yeah, but I mean, if with capacity at 100% or so, I mean, wouldn't they need to increase capacity and, and you know, put, you know, do some CapEx or something? To, to so really what you do is you the by. refiners the refiners they're doing they're doing expansions on their existing lines they are okay uh, on their existing properties when they're allowed but no one's building a new refinery yeah I, I think the last new refinery that was built in the U.S. was in the 70s so all of these refineries are 20 30 40 years old and that's why we're never at 100 percent capacity they're always doing shutdowns there's always a shutdown for maintenance. Because we have all these different blends. You have spring blends. You have winter blends. California has seven different blends of gasoline that they have to mix for the state. It's not, again, it's refining. It's not, okay, push this button. We're going to refine it different now. No, it's finish this run. Clean the machines. It goes down for maintenance. Then it starts back up and we blend that new blend of gasoline. So there's always downtime because we don't have a cohesive energy policy in the U.S. We have different energy policies in different states. Different states require, this is amazing, that different states require different blends of gasoline. There's no, there's no national policy for gasoline in the U.S. Do you know how much more gasoline we could refine and produce if we didn't have to stop every six weeks or every four weeks to retrofit a, a refinery or, or reboot a refinery for a different blend for a different state? It's stunning. Wow. But our energy oh, yeah. policy is a mess. So, yeah. um, yes. So the short answer is yes, they can add capacity, but that takes years. That takes okay. years to add refining capacity. Just the permitting process alone yeah. can take a year or two. So what is you the market go missing here with these stocks? Like KMI, I've watched pretty closely, and, and it's kind of, I mean, it bounces a bit, certainly since the last time we spoke, but 
it kind of hasn't it's dropped back down again along with a lot. Yeah. So I think you know, I think the biggest misunderstanding in those two pipeline plays is that they're MPLs. I still talk to people, they're like, I don't, I don't MLPs, I'm sorry. Uh M, no MPLs. Master limit should probably MLP. Yeah. yeah, yeah, MLPs. Uh and they're gonna get a K1. They hate that. No one likes getting K1s. And you know, I have to explain it. These are C Corps, they all did the conversion. Uh, right after the the 06 to 08 collapse in the in the industry, uh, a lot of them converted to C corps to eliminate that scenario uh, for investors. So I mean, I know a lot of guys wouldn't hold them in IRAs because there was hassle with that, but that no longer exists. That's gone right now. And honestly, they're boring. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, no one goes to the bar and talks about the pipeline companies that they own. Not yet. Not yet. But I mean, hey, if I could, if I could pump out. Five to ten percent annual increase, a six to eight percent cash dividend that I can reinvest every year. That's that adds up pretty quick over the course of five ten years. Mm -hmm. It really does. So cool, nice. All right, great, Todd Sullivan. I want to take a quick break and come back and ask you about something completely different, which is cannabis. So, which you also have a, a focus on. But yeah. let's first take a, a break. If you are a premium subscriber, you do not get the break. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it, or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. Here with Todd Sullivan, valueplays.com. Uh, we spent the first half of the show talking about oil, and now I would like to 
shift focus to a higher plane. Now, I was trying to figure out to work in the cannabis, you know, higher. <laughs> I wondered what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it didn't work. Didn't work. Um, but anyway, but let's talk about this cannabis. Yeah. I know very little about this from an investment standpoint, except that it attracted a bunch of hype. It seems like a couple of years ago now, and that's kind of died mm-hmm. down now. Seems like crypto's kind of overtook that. But yeah, talk me through this. What's what's the what's the strategy here? Yeah. So cannabis rolled out legalization with the Canadian companies. Was it 2015, 2016, something like that? Uh, stocks on ballistic because the investment world figured that you know everyone smokes cannabis, everyone loves it, everyone's going to want it. It's going to be hugely profitable. The problem is no one ever actually bothered to look at the rules of the game. Right? And the rules of the game are. Canadian cannabis is locked in Canada. It ain't coming to the U.S. Uh, The U.S. does not have a cannabis market. It has 50 individual states with 50 individual sets of rules. Uh, So there are no economies of scales in cannabis right now on a national level. In in Canada, there is. but There's no Canadian companies, honestly, that I think are really worth investing in because of the regulations in Canada. It's... Inefficient, let's call it that way. <laughs> let's not insult the Canadians. Let's call it inefficient. Uh, lousy regulations make for lousy business size, uh, structure. And if you look at the fundamental results of the Canadian companies versus the U.S. companies, uh, it's, it's a night and day. So I wouldn't even touch any Canadian cannabis companies right now okay. for the 10-foot pole. In the even States, though Canada has a marijuana flag, on, marijuana leaf on their flag. Even though they do, they were the first country to legalize it. It's readily accessible, readily available. But the problem is, you have private production of cannabis in Canada, very, uh, very laissez-faire, very few regulations, very few restrictions, very few limits on it. In the Providence, you have public distribution. Like in Quebec, the government owns the dispensaries. Hmm. So anytime, anytime in history you have that dynamic, it's never a good business environment, right? Because you have people who at, at the bottom end who care about price, care about quality, care about distribution, at the, but the end user, the dispensary, doesn't care about any of that because they're a government organization. They don't give a shit. They're just going to process transactions, right? So you're never going to develop a robust, good market. And the fun of, and the results of the Canadian companies have proven that versus the U.S. Now, when this flips legal and there's inter, in, international transportation of cannabis, and I have no idea how that's going to take, maybe that situation changes because most private growers in Canada will have additional markets to sell their cannabis into. But I mean that's that's down the road, and I'm not very okay. uh, optimistic that happening anytime soon. All right. So then in the U.S., you have a situation where every state is a is a nation, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to grow in Massachusetts, if I grow in Massachusetts, I have to sell to Massachusetts dispensaries who can only buy from Massachusetts producers, and have to sell it in the state of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Nothing goes across state border right now. Right. So when people looking at the Cura Leafs, uh, the True Leafs in the U.S., Juicy Holdings, et cetera, they don't have, it's not like an Altria, right, where they're, they're, they're making massive amounts of Marlboro cigarettes in this production facility. They can produce, you know, 4 million cases a year of Marlboro cigarettes and ship it all over. They got to do that in each state, right? So there's not a lot of economies of scale right now. The industry as itself has traded on legalization news. Right. Yeah. Uh, or the Safe Banking Act. Right. Um, people are under the assumption that safe banking is going to be this uh, panacea for the industry. Everything is going to loosen up. Capital is going to be readily available. And I got news for you. Nothing could be farther from the truth. 
Hmm. What'll happen when safe banking passes is some of your regional banks are going to tiptoe into it, but your JP Morgan, your city, your, your big banks will not touch cannabis until it is federally legal because they have too much risk otherwise, right? Bank of America's headquarters is in Charlotte, right? They're going to touch cannabis in Massachusetts. South Carolina can say, get out of our state, right? We don't want you in our state for touching cannabis, right? And that's, that's a huge problem for Bank of America. Yeah. So I've spoken to people at the major banks and told that we will not touch it until it's federally legal. Now, if they deschedule it, that would, in my opinion, have a bigger effect on the industry than the Safe Banking Act. The Safe Banking Act okay. is nice. Uh, we can have some senators walk around and pat themselves on the back for doing nothing, which is what they're really good at. Yeah. It will it will have some effect in the margins, but it's not going to unleash capital on the industry. The only thing that will unleash capital in the industry is going to be legalization or descheduling from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule Two or lower. So the investment is you got to look long term. Okay, right. I think legalization happens with the next administration. You got a two year window. Okay, I think no matter who the next president is, they legalize cannabis. The next president is going to be a younger Democrat, right? They're going to be, hey, we got to do this. If you're a Republican president, right? The largest voting bloc coming up right now are millennials and Gen Z. Top three priority for them is cannabis legalization. You're a Republican president. You go in there and you legalize cannabis. You steal a top voting demographics key issue and make it your own, right? It's pragmatically and politically it's the smartest thing you can fucking do. And not only that, 70% of the US public wants it. 70% of the US public wants cannabis legalized. So there's no political backlash to doing it, right? So if you're gonna buy cannabis stocks, buy the large US-based MSOs. Be prepared to hold them for a couple of years. If you like the MSO, MSOS ETF, there's the YOLO ETF. Find the one, and I haven't done the research, I apologize. Find the one that has the most U.S.-based companies in it. You want to eliminate your Canadian companies as fast as possible from this equation. Because when it goes legal in the U.S., money will pour into these companies like we have never seen in any industry at all. Right now, there are trillions of dollars because of the federal status of this plant that cannot invest in cannabis. I have people I know on Wall Street. We're dying to invest in privately held cannabis companies and can't touch it. JP Morgan will not let investors in his prime brokerage buy legally traded cannabis stocks. So the, the demand is out there. The ability to invest in it is restricted. When this turns legal, I'm telling you, we, we saw a glimpse of this when Biden won the election, right? When Biden won the election in November, by January, February, by, uh, prices had skyrocketed for all cannabis stocks. And then about a month later, it became kind of obvious, wait a minute, why are they talking about doing something in the summer, right? So it's, I started coming back down. And then it was fall. And then they introduced a bullshit bill in the spring and summer that no one's going to vote for. And it just kept drifting lower. So when legalization hits, the major MSOs in the U.S. are going to go crazy. Before what does that, MSO stand for? Multi-state operators. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. So truly. it was like Tilray and, and, and Tilray's Canadian. So you oh. got Truly out of Florida, right? You got, I you want to look for U.S. based ones. Truly is the big one in Florida. The one I have right now that I love, there's two that I have right now that I love. Number one is a REIT, IIPR. Okay. okay. It is the only publicly traded pure cannabis REIT on the market. 
they operated primarily in the medical side. They're going into the adult use side now. Uh, we bought them on value plays. We bought it in 20, I want to say 2019. Uh, they had about 11 properties. It was about 35 bucks a share. Uh, now they're at about 111 properties. Uh, last I looked, there's around 100 bucks a share. We're getting a 12% dividend yield right mm. now. The dividend's grown so fast. The current dividend yield's about 8% on this thing, and it's a rate, and it's kicking off cash left and right. They just raised the dividend 20% year over year. So as a cash play, we're, uh, you know, my subscribers, we're, we're getting 11% cash dividend on, mm. every year on this sucker. I think this thing's, you know, it was as high as 285 last year. I think it can easily eclipse that based on the fact that they're the only player in the market right now that's in that space. Hmm. Another little company that I like is called um, Glasshouse out of California. I own the Warrants GW Glasshouse Brands. GHBWF is the name of the Warrants. They're dirt, dirt cheap right now. They have a great management team. They are going to be probably the largest low-cost producer in California legal cannabis, and they've acquired some really top-shelf dispensaries. So when I look at them, I look at them as a Starbucks uh, of dispensaries, right? They're going to have premium flour. They're going to control their supply with very low-priced cannabis, and they have very nice dispensaries where they're not going to have to be competing on price, right? So you know, Starbucks is never the cheapest coffee anywhere, but people lock the doors because of the product and the quality of the product they have. I think Glasshouse is creating the same thing. Glasshouse is the only plant-touching cannabis stock that I own right now. I bought the Warrens. I think there's five years left on the Warrens. In, in the next five years, cannabis will be legal. And when it is legal, those Warrens are going to be worth a lot, a lot of money. So that's how I'm playing. When you look at cannabis right now, if I, I look, you got to look at least two years out. So yeah. looking in the next two years, all the only that's going to happen now in two years is the stocks are going to go up and down based on legalization rumors. If a bill gets filed, they're going to go up. When nothing happens, they'll come back down. So that's that's what's going to happen in space right now. Now, what about, couldn't you just buy like a, you know, a cigarette company and, and to play the same trend? Because wouldn't they be getting into this then if it does become legalized nationally or decriminalized, whatever? They will get into it by purchasing. Okay. So what'll happen? Let's assume, let's assume that's legal, Because right, right now, right now in, in Massachusetts, you can't you can't combine alcohol and tobacco. You can't combine alcohol and cannabis, right? Yeah. So state by state, that may not be able to do. And I'm not even sure on the federal level that they're going to allow Philip Morris to own, you know, call it True Leaf cannabis. I see. I don't even know if that's going to be allowed. And I'm not even sure they're going to let. It, uh, alcohol mix with cannabis. So okay. um, I, that's that's not something that I would, I wouldn't bank an investment thesis on that. Uh, okay. I've heard Altria is doing everything they can behind the scenes to position themselves mm -hmm. to be part of that industry, uh, but there's no guarantee they're going to be going to be allowed to. I see. And what now politically, I mean, we've been hearing about legalization for a while. Yes, it's, it's much more uh, supported now, certainly. Mm -hmm. that has been in, in a long time but i mean could you know the the schumer's in the hand of the the pharma companies but aren't republican lawmakers also if not more so and i mean just because there's a republican that comes in doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a layup either would it yeah so politically the last count i saw was there were 11 democrats uh that were not prepared to vote for any legalization bill 
that was before Congress. So, okay. you know, even, you know, the, everyone wants to make it, you know, a purely political left versus right issue, but even the left can't agree on how many yeah. they want. And there were Republican governors who were going to vote for it. So I think the actual number of votes that Schumer needed was five or six to pass oh. up or to get the tie he needed to be able to have Harris break the tie in the Senate. Right. I don't think he's gotten there yet because the last bill they put forward is, I think it was worse than the first one, really. So okay. um, what I think is going to happen, and a lot of it depends on what happens in the, right, in the midterm elections, right? Sure. So I'm guessing, based on history, uh, if history holds, Republicans should take the House and the Senate in the midterms, right? Because anytime you have, anytime a party owns all three, they tend to lose something in the midterms. And when you add a recession or high inflation into that, it's even more pronounced, right? So I'm assuming, you know, we, the Republicans should pick up, if they don't take it, they should pick up seats in both, right? And the Senate's a tie, so they should take control of the Senate, which effectively kills it for the next two years under Biden. Right. If that doesn't happen, I'm not sure anything changes with Biden. Now, I could see Biden, you know, sort of as a, uh, walking out the door in two years, a gift to his Democratic colleagues, legalizing it if they still have control of the Senate and the House at that time. If they don't, he can't, you know, he could deschedule it without Congress, okay. which is a, not a legalization, but it's a, it, it, does, it does open up a lot of doors. And he could do that. Um, we make to see if he's going to be done. I, I do firmly believe that there's two reasons the Republicans would vote for it when they came in. The number one, as I said before, it's a, it's a purely Democratic issue right now. By Republicans taking the lead and legalizing it, they could steal the, one of the most important political issues from the, for the largest voting demographic coming up. They could go back to Bremer and say, we legalized marijuana for you. Democrats didn't do it. We did it, number one. Number two, every single state that legalizes cannabis is a massive inflow of tax revenue. Massive inflow tax revenue. It took it took Massachusetts two years to eclipse alcohol taxes with cannabis taxes, and right now we're forty percent ahead of that. So we collect seventy five at the end of last year. We collected seventy five million dollars in cannabis taxes, only fifty in alcohol. It took two years to get to that number. Okay, now it's the best tax for politician. It's not a sales tax, not an income tax, not a property tax. Right? It doesn't affect the general population. If you don't use it, you don't pay it. So everyone loves those taxes, except the people who use it, but whatever, they don't care, right? So it's a user tax. So it, it, it's, it's politicians look at that as free money, right? So by legalizing it on a national level, you're going to increase tax revenue to all the municipalities, all the states, at a time when they desperately need help with their own balance sheets and their own activities in their own state. And then you, 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 steal, a, you steal a significant voting issue from a large demographic. I, Politically, it makes perfect sense. But it all really about, it depends on who is the next Republican, right? Is it going to be DeSantis, who, by the way, has a great medical program in his state, right? Now, they haven't legalized adult use because there's a lot of, it's the, a lot of the um, licensing thing is tied up in, in lawsuits um, because, you know, Florida. <laughs> Florida, <laughs> say no more, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's tied up in lawsuits, but they have a program. They have a robust medical program in Florida. The largest USMSO is headquartered in Florida, it's truly. Um, so, you know, it's not like he's from a state like Texas, where if you're caught with a, you know, a seed in your pocket, you're doing 10 to 15 years. It's, they allow cannabis in Florida. You can walk down the street of Miami and smoke a joint and the police can walk by you. They're not going to bother you. 
right? It is, it is openly smoked south. If you go to South Beach, it's everywhere, right? So it's not an issue. So if it's DeSantis, I could see him also legalizing because he's very, um, he's very politically opportune, yeah. right? And he would take that opportunity. If it's someone older than DeSantis, they bring, you know, there's another retread, like Biden was a Democratic retread of the Republicans bring someone back out of hiding to run for president, and that's all bets off as far as what their actual look on it. If it's some, someone younger than DeSantis, I think it's a no-brainer they legalize it. It really comes down to age. You know that that sixty to eighty-year-old age is still in that it's a gateway drug mindset. Reef you know? madness. It, yeah. All right. Well, I mean, that aside, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be? It would also make sense for Biden. One would think, I mean, you could, the tax windfall from this, you could fund all kinds of stuff, you would think, yeah. as far as infrastructure and what have you. Like, so I, don't, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no practical reason for doing what he's doing, right? He campaigned on legalizing. He campaigned yeah. on letting people out. He campaigned, he campaigned on com- competing access. He picked Kamala Harris because of her stance on it. Now, her stance was a flip-flop because she was the, she used to brag about yeah. being the incarcerator in chief when she was the G, uh, AG of California. Uh, but whatever, she changed her mind. That's great. That's politics. Um, he campaigned on it all. His party is behind it. His voters are, there's no, there's no pragmatic reason for him doing what he's doing at all, other than he has that 1950s mindset on the planet, and he's not going to change his mind no matter what happens. And they just said, I mean, he's getting asked constantly now about it. And even the industry now, the industry gave him a pass for the first year. But even some of the more left-leaning people in the industry are like, hey, <laughs> You lied to our face, and they're calling him out on it now. You know, it's like uh, he, you know, Kamala Harris is talking to the Russians about Brittany Griner, who is in prison over there for a hash pipe, right? Yeah. But there's forty thousand people in the U.S. still in prison that they could let out with a snap of a finger, and they're not doing it, right? So the industry's like, we don't really care. that you're on TV complaining about Brittany Griner when we got forty thousand U.S. citizens in prison in our own country yeah. for the same thing she's in jail for there. And it's just right now, there's just this political opportunism on their part. And, and the industry is starting to revolt and get sick of it. And uh, as a, hey, you promised and you lied. So mm-hmm. uh, I do think if they don't seriously do something about legalization for the midterms, it'll be a dramatic, it'll be a significant reason why uh, they get uh, their butt handed to them in the midterms. Because, uh, you know, if you're under 25 years old and you voted for that, you feel lied to. Mm-hmm. You really yeah. do. I mean, I guess you could you could maybe argue that they don't they it wasn't just wasn't a priority politically, and that maybe in the second half of the, the term it will be. Uh, you know, he wanted to pass yeah, these that's infrastructure the argument, bills. That's the argument that. they're making, right? It's not a priority right now. And yeah, the industry yeah. is saying that. Well, you campaign on it. One of the, you said one of the first things we'll do. Okay. Right? You, they the problem is Biden and Harris ran so hard on it to get those votes from those demographics that they promised them the world. And they haven't delivered. And now that what they're saying now is the opposite of what they said then. But it is cool, going right. It will happen. It will happen in the next two to four years. So use that mindset when you're investing. Buy the U.S.-based companies. Don't go on the pink sheets and buy the Canadian pharmaceuticals because your buddy saw one of them that was trading at four cents, bought it, bought out for five bucks because 95% of those are going to zero. You know what I mean? Just buy the big entrenched U.S. companies. Be patient. Wait. When it flips legal, you're going to be well, well. I mean, you know, stock that triples in a year. If you've held it for three years, that's a great return, right? Yeah, no. Sit on something. 
flat for a couple of years because you don't know when that legal thing is. My thing is when people ask me, is like, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it's going to. You know, it, 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 if you want to wait to legalization to buy these stocks, you will miss the majority of the run-up. You will miss the majority of the price gains in them. It's yeah. no different than buying oil a year ago, right? I don't know when it was going to go up, but I know it was going to eventually. Mm -hmm. I don't know when we're going to legalize, but I know we're going to eventually. When we do, it's going to be spectacular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So we got uh, IIPR. That was the REIT you mentioned. What's what's yeah. uh, TrueLeaf? What's that? that they're in Florida. No, so TrueLeaf is the is an MSO people could buy. Oh. I don't own TrueLeaf myself, but I think it's okay. I think it's I don't know. It's on the pink sheet. They're all on the pink sheet. Oh, that's okay. None of cannabis can't be on the stock exchange. The Nasdaq okay. or the Dow because the federally legal makes sense. Uh, that's another that also restricts right. There are a lot of funds that can't buy pink sheet stocks, right? Uh -huh. So if you're a mutual fund or if you're you know, some family offices or pension funds, you can't buy pink sheet stocks. Yeah. So you can't buy cannabis stocks, even though you may want to. Um, and they're almost glass house brands out of California. The warrants are, yeah. yeah, those those are dirt, dirt cheap. I bought a boatload. When it gets low, I buy some more. And I have a my outlook on that is is two to five years. And I know in that time frame we're going to get legalization. And when we do, those warrants are going to be worth several, several multiples of what they are now. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to sit back and wait for that. Any international stocks that you that you looked at in this? Because it's legal no. elsewhere. I guess the demographics don't make sense. And not nothing in Canada internationally. Yeah. No, there are some there are some pharmaceutical companies internationally, but I don't I don't have a skill set to to figure out where you know you have GW Pharmaceuticals. Uh, they got bought up by so I forget the name of it, but you know they're they're in Great Britain. You know, the pharmaceutical companies are in Europe, but it's to me it's. I don't even invest in U.S. pharmaceuticals because I just don't have any skill set to be able to say this drug versus this drug is going to make it to market first and have that kind yeah, of yeah yeah that's that's a whole yeah it's it's yeah yeah you're betting on that it's luck I think yeah. I think most people investing in pharmaceuticals get lucky if they have something new or they're a Probably. doctor or they have a friend who knows oh, hey this company's dialysis machine is getting picked up by everyone you should buy it kind of thing yeah I did at one point one of the better returning hedge funds several years ago was a biofarm. Yeah, um, and there's and but there's do. been a bunch of these that started with with you know some of, with former doctors and stuff, and they thought they could game it and and but this That's one what I you think, have to be as far as I'm, if you're going to invest in that, you have to have a doctor or someone on your staff that you can talk to that understands what's happening with these things and stuff like that. But I mean, hey, the pharmaceutical guys, if they hit it, I mean, they hit it huge. Yeah. They really do. I mean, but even with the doctors, bad. a lot of them didn't work out. Like a lot no, of these funds, no, like no. Did, so yeah, because you're still playing politics. You're still playing politics with the FDA sure. at that point. No yeah, matter yeah, what yeah. you do, at the end of the game, still politics with the FDA. Yep. All right, <laughs> Todd Sullivan, thank you for this very interesting conversation. Maybe in closing, you. you can let our readers, our readers, our listeners know where they can find out more about you and about valueplays.com, other than valueplays.com. And yeah, that'd that'd be the show notes as well. <laughs> yeah, head to the website, valueplays.com. Uh, if anyone's interested in private placements in the cannabis business and getting involved in cannabis companies at the ground floor before they go public uh that website's canapreneurpartners.com uh welcome to go there and uh, my cell phone or email there i'm happy to have any conversation anybody wants accredited investors only though so yeah sure yeah very yeah. good awesome well thank you thank todd you. thank you all for uh listening and we look forward to speaking to you again next week thank you for listening to the contrarian investor podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. 
Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.